So the facility series that I've been teasing for way too long is written and pretty much complete. But my buddy who is going to do the shows with me, because we did decide to make them two shows, he runs an assisted living facility and that man works a lot. He's a good leader and picks up a lot of shifts and we just haven't connected yet. So rather than wait and have more gaps... I decided to, I think I'm going to try to do a couple episodes in a row here. Um, And so I am jumping back to our burnout series. And today we're going to discuss how long should a hospice nursing visit last? Um, 20 minutes? 30 minutes? An hour? Two hours? Like, which is it? And the answer is yes. (laughs) so let's talk about it this is james dibbon and welcome to the hospice nursing podcast Well, hello, fellow hospice nurses all across America, and welcome to your show. That's right, welcome to the only show that offers practical help for hospice nursing success. I am your host, James Dibbon, with Confessions of a Hospice Nurse.net, and I'm very glad that you have decided to join us today. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to your show, and it is so good to have you here. I've been really been enjoying a lot of interaction with so many listeners right now and and appreciate everybody who is emailing me and asking me questions. Uh, I can't even go through and mention the names because so often I am I have been asked to keep their name to myself as they're reaching out and asking for help. And, and I get that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of sad in some ways, right? That, that, um, somebody may worry that their boss or a supervisor or somebody might find out that they're reaching out and asking for help outside of them. Um, and, and I would like to think I would not feel the same way if, if one of my nurses was getting good help from somewhere that was helping them, um, I would be glad to know it. Maybe I could learn something, <laughs> But anyway, so if you are somebody who's reached out to me in private, um, thank you for doing so. I I think a lot of people assume that I get way more emails than I ever really get. And because most folks just consume the content and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. I hope that you get what you need from this show and and I don't need a ton of attention. A little bit's nice (laughs) just to know somebody out there is listening. Uh, So, hey, if you want to take a moment and reach out to the show, uh, you know, I usually mention this at the end, but I'll mention it at the beginning today that you can call and leave a voicemail on our listener feedback line or you can text me on it at 816 eight three four nine one nine one right here in Kansas City. And then but you can also just email me at James at confessions of a hospice nurse dot net. So thank you for joining me today. Do you feel like you get stuck in your visits sometimes? You get there and you take care of what needs to be taken care of and you find yourself being stuck there and you have a lot of hour and a half, two hour visits. And you're like, what happened? You get out to your car and now you feel completely overwhelmed because you still have three visits left for the day and it's two forty-five or something. And you can kind of start feeling defeated really quick. And when you find yourself in that situation. So for today's show, I'm going to take one of my burnout series articles and hopefully expand on it in some ways that aren't in the article writing that series 
has been huge and, and really has helped a lot of people. And I like doing an audio version of it, but I, you know, I don't just read, I don't want to just read the article. I go to it and I grab some nuggets out of it maybe, but I don't want to just, I don't want this to be a complete duplicate. I want you to receive something different having listened to the podcast versus, um, you know, uh, versus reading the article, because honestly you can read the article quicker than you can listen to me prattle on here. (laughs) But, um, but let's talk about some things. And and I pretty much took that article and and wrote out the categories or the the little sections of it, but I want to talk about it a little bit here, uh, with just some other thoughts and some ideas and things that we can talk about. So, um, I think it's important to acknowledge at the very beginning that you are going to have long visits and you can't always just beat yourself up uh, because you're having lots of long, you know, because you had a long visit. The thing is, is every visit long is everywhere you go long or all your visits one to two hours. And we'll talk about some things you need to consider if you find that happening a lot. But uh, I have a patient right now that a one to two hour visit happens on, it happens routinely because this patient has a lot of wound care that needs to be done. It has to be a joint visit with my, my, one of my aides, uh, because it's just not a one person task. It's a two person task. And most of the time we're out of there in 45 minutes to an hour, but every now and then something just goes wrong. Um, this patient has a permanent catheter and there's a lot of sediment there and it gets clogged a lot and we find ourselves having to change out the catheter frequently or having a lot of wound care changes because right now he the we have like how many uh one two like five wounds technically that we address i just had to add two more this week so that was a long visit i was there at least an hour and a half but I'm, I'm not there an hour and a half every time, but you may end up, you may be listening to this right now and you may be thinking of a couple of patients that, that an hour and a half is just what's going to happen every week. Um, and, and if you can identify why, and you can look at it objectively and go, we're, we're doing important work every single visit. And that's just how long the visit is going to take. It's going to be a 90 minute visit every time. Uh, just make sure that the reason for that is solid and as long as you can justify it and this isn't something that's happening at every patient every day uh, then I don't think you need to be beating yourself up on it so some visits are just gonna be long Um, but let's go through a bit of a list here and talk about some things that I think will help you and make sure you are doing that can help kind of take control of those visits and and not let them run you, but you're running the visit. And the first thing I want to mention and talk about is the importance of seeing everyone at least twice a week. So when I first took over the office that I am in, there was some bad habits going on there that I quickly addressed with my staff and, and didn't have any issues with getting it fixed really. But the staff there would go and see a patient for the first time and felt like, well, this patient's pretty stable, uh, as stable as hospice can be, right? And I don't think they need me twice a week, so I'm going to put them once a week. And I'll have to be honest with you, this was the first time I had ever ran into a an office or a team that that was okay with that, and that was like how they operated. If they got to a patient and they weren't in transition or having a lot of issues or problems, then they would just instantly move them to one time a week and, hey, I'll see you next week. I have some real concerns with that. And so if you are looking over your caseload right now and you have multiple patients one time a week who have been on service for, you know, maybe they're even still in their first 90 and they're already at one time a week, I think you need to just ask yourselves, ask yourself, why are they at one time a week? Now, if they're a patient who says, this is what we want, we need you once a week, and that will work for us, and let's just pick Wednesday afternoons, 
then then they've decided that and this is their care plan not your care plan and it's their care plan and not my care plan so um it's perfectly fine to have somebody one time per week eventually um you might have a patient who has been on your services for a while and they're in a bit of a plateau but your medical director has determined they continue to qualify for hospice and you're kind of waiting for them to hit the next stage of their disease process. And so as a team, you've decided maybe that one time a week is plenty right now in this plateau. That's probably fine. But if you have somebody who's brand new to your services and you have already knocked them down to one time a week, I find that to be very problematic because the main reason that I think that's a problem is you're not really getting to know your patient and you're setting yourself up for long visits later because you're not like developing that relationship and that rapport that you need with your patient and more importantly their caregivers because you get opportunity excuse me you get opportunities to educate them, to explain the changes they may or may not be seeing. And as that patient begins to transition and maybe even become actively dying, and now you're having to ramp up your visits, you don't have the depth of relationship with that caregiver that you need. And now you're finding yourself educating them on things that maybe you've talked with them about previously, but because you're just there once a week and you're not super active in the case, you're having to readdress all of those things. So if you are somebody who has, you know, half of your caseload, if you've got 12 patients and six or seven of them are just one time a week, you might need to reevaluate your caseload. And are there some patients who maybe would benefit from you being there most more frequently even if it is just to help encourage them and educate them and just be that extra support so believe it or not only seeing somebody once a week can ultimately contribute to you having longer visits down the road Um, and then I, I wanted to take a couple of minutes to talk about the two different types of visits in hospice and um there's so you know medicare requires that the patient's um care plan is updated no you know more frequently or i don't i'm gonna end up saying this wrong but a minimum of every 14 days an rn has to visit to update their care plan like and really technically it's 15 like medicare loves 15 and there's some good reasons for that but we don't have to mess around talking about that kind of thing right now but with our organization we require all patients to be seen at least weekly because if you try to play around with that 14 day limit it's real easy to end up getting it missed so we don't let any of our patients push us to only they may look up the guidelines and go well you don't really have to be here any more than every 15 days and we won't let them do that and we'll say i understand that that might be a medicare guideline but it's too easy to drop out of compliance because we're seeing you every thursday and or every you know 14 days on thursdays and then something bad happens and we can't go in till friday because something happened with you or something came up and now you have to cancel and now we're out of compliance so we make sure everybody gets at least one visit a week by an rn and but there really are two visit types you have your comprehensive assessment most emrs have a comprehensive assessment and then a focused or a routine assessment okay and we use matrix care we changed to that recently and so you have your comprehensive assessment where you do a head-to-toe assessment you assess all of the um, different systems right the respiratory uh, you know cardiac just all of it how much they sleep how much they're eating go through the whole care plan and document against the whole care plan so a minimum of once a week we have to document the entirety of the patient's 
record, so to speak. Care plans, systems, all of it, right? And then the second visit of the week, and you could compare this to an on-call visit where it's more of just a routine, a focused assessment. What's the main thing I can help you with today? So to, so what we do with our system and our practices here, and it's how I train excuse me train all of my nurses is that you you're seeing everybody twice a week with a few exceptions and that first visit of the week is your comprehensive assessment that's when you're going to assess the whole patient you're going to document against the entire care plan that happens once a week and we always encourage everybody to to do a full assessment on their patients so on a monday or a tuesday when you see everybody for the first time that week, everybody gets a comprehensive assessment. So all of those visits are going to naturally take a little bit longer. But by Thursday, you're doing your second visit of the week for most of your patients. And that is more of a routine or a focused assessment where you address their immediate needs. Maybe you made some changes on Monday to one of their medications and and you're back on Thursday, and so we're going to talk about that. Let's talk about this medication that we changed. How are you doing with it? So you might not touch much of your assessment. Now, our policy where I work is that you assess pain every visit. I don't care who, why you're there. I don't care what your role is, whether you're on call at night, weekends. Pain has to be assessed and that care plan needs to be addressed every visit. So, but that second visit, I might not even get vital signs on that patient. It just depends on what's important to them. If the blood pressure is important because they're trying to keep record and, hey, you're an RN and they want that record for their own good, then, of course, you're going to do vitals. But that second visit is more about following up, preparing for the weekend, making sure the patient is set. So the comprehensive visit a lot of times is an hour long, but that routine visit may only be half an hour long. And I think it's important for us to stop for a second before we go into a house and say, what's my plan going into this home? You know, what did I do on Monday that now I need to follow up on today? Or maybe there's not a whole lot of anything, and it's a chance to just sit down, check in on them, see how they're doing, make sure they're good for the weekend, and you're out kind of quick. That's what my week was like this last week, um, because I did the second visits of the week, and they on all the comprehensive assessments had been done at the first, so I was in and out of everybody's life pretty quick on the second half of the week. So my visits were a half hour, including the charting because I didn't have to chart every little thing. I'm not, don't be a paranoid nurse who feels like they have to chart the entire system and write a great big long comprehensive note with every visit. Unless, you're, unless your organization is telling you something different, obviously. <laughs> um, how about this idea that I really try to stress a lot with my staff is bring the calm with you and what that might seem kind of obvious but it's really easy to get caught up in the stress and the anxiety of the home and find ourselves just as stressed as the people were around and I think this can happen a lot for on-call visits because many times we're driving into a house that we've never been in before and we don't know anybody and we've gotten a quick little report from maybe our triage nurse or we, you know, we talked to them over the phone and they definitely sounded anxious. And so now we're just showing up to go in and solve all their problems, or at least that's what we feel the pressure to do. And I try to remind my nurses all the time, take that big cleansing breath before you ring the doorbell or walk in, just stop for a second and take a few breaths. I love cleansing breaths. My wife used to think I was mad at her when I would do it. I'd just be sitting there going. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
I have had some members at the hospice nursing community request some kind of a support group to help fight burnout. And so I have started two burnout support groups at the hospicenursingcommunity.com just to help everybody. And so these support groups meet twice a month on the second Thursday and the second Sunday of the month. And so we're going to be doing that. And I wanted to make sure you understood or knew that these will be faith-friendly support groups. And it doesn't mean they'll be preaching or anything strange like that, but I might use devotionals. I might pull something out of the Bible, maybe out of Psalms or something, but just there might be sections of the uh, of the group that deal with matters of faith. And, and I hope that is of interest to you. Uh, it can be found in the community events uh, section of the community. So if you would consider joining, I think it would help you. It's going to help me. I need it, I think, as much as anybody does. So join a burnout support group at thehospicenursingcommunity.com. And she's like, what I do? And I said, nothing. It's a cleansing breath. I'm not huffing at you, dear. <laughs> she's used to it now. It's been a long, we've been married 31 years. So, so she gets me. Um, but don't be afraid to do that, to, to calm yourself. And an example I used on the article that I wrote, and it's just it, it, at the website, confessionsofahospicenurse.net, in the menu, there is, um, what I call it? Now I forget what I even call the dumb thing. It's avoiding hospice burnout. Yeah, sorry. that I couldn't remember what I titled it in the menu, but it's called avoiding hospice burnout, and there's several episodes in there. Did I make it to 10? I haven't reviewed it a whole ton lately, but yeah, I made 10, 10 articles there. But one of the experiences that I referenced in that article was a nurse who showed up to do an admission and the hospital had discharged the patient early, which is unheard of, right? We're usually waiting and waiting. And so the patient got to the house before all the equipment did. And this patient was, this patient didn't even live another week after they were discharged home. And so the patient was very ill on oxygen, needed a hospital bed, all of it. And my nurse was really, really freaking out over the situation. And I had to really help coach her through that and tell her the room is only as will only be as calm as you are and coached her through how to take control of that situation and bring the calm to the situation. And that can look different in different situations. And I can't give you every example of how to be the calm one, but you can by sometimes you just to be the calm one, you have to be super intentional and know exactly what you're going to do here. Recently, I had a, a patient and the patient was a brand new admission and she was going down kind of quick. I had been taking care of her for two or for just a couple of weeks and I got there one morning and she had had a real bad change in condition overnight. And when I showed up, her bed was a mess and she she didn't have, you know, her brief was soaked and the, the person in there providing care was her daughter-in-law and her daughter-in-law didn't have a clue what she was doing, which is okay, right? And I got there and she was in a little bit of a panic and I just walked over to her and, and I just looked her in the eye and I put my hand out and she put her hand in it and I said, it's going to be okay, I'm here to help you. And, um, I I said, what do you think about a catheter? And she was like, Oh, can we do that? And I'm like, sure. So I ran out to my car and grabbed a catheter and brought it up and I gave her plenty to do. It's like, it's, it's like in all the movies when the, 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 the wife goes into labor and they look at the husband and say, go boil some water and get some newspapers. They never use any of it, but let's get the man doing something to get him out of our hair. (laughs) keep him busy but I gave her a few tasks that were useful and she went and got the sheets that I needed and a flat sheet and while she did that I got everything out that I needed to do and took care of getting the catheter in and we swapped out all the sheets and got everything straightened out 
and she came up and gave me a big hug when I was done and was like, oh my gosh, you're a superhero, you know, and, and we don't feel like superheroes, but imagine being in her condition, not knowing what to do. And then within a half hour of the nurse being there, her loved one is comfortable and repositioned and pulled up in bed. And now she knows all the tricks and she's able to do the caregiving herself. That is how you bring the calm with you. Don't be afraid to rely on your experience and have that calm, relaxing demeanor that we are all capable of. Everybody is capable of that if you take those deep cleansing breaths before you walk in the door. So let's talk about avoiding power struggles. So my very first medical director was Dr. Timothy Link here in Kansas City. And I would say at least once a week for my first year in hospice, he would say to me, avoid power struggles. Don't get into any power struggles with patients or their caregivers, the decision makers in the situation. And what he was trying to teach me was that once I leave the home, they are going to do what they're going to do. And I think sometimes nurses, we really were, we can be very much control freaks to a certain degree. And can I encourage you to not try to be a control freak in this work? Because it's not going to work. Um, because once you leave the home, the patient and their caregiver, they're going to do what they want to do. So you don't want to find yourself getting into power struggles and it it doesn't mean you're no, nobody's yelling at each other but you can tell when a patient or a family member is listening to you and going to take your advice and you can tell when they feel like they know what they're doing or they can see a path that they want to take and you need to be willing to let them take that path and be available to them when it doesn't work out and I think I've talked about this on the show before when we've talked about caregivers and things like that is that you need to be sure that you are judging them based on their intentions, not the results sometimes. And you can go back to other episodes and find that. I apologize. I can't remember at this point, which episode that was, but we need to, we need to consider what our caregivers are trying to do, not what ended up working out. And so sometimes you're going to have to leave knowing their idea isn't going to work, but you can be available to them when it doesn't work and maybe they'll be more willing to listen to you. And, and I, I don't, I don't always get good feedback when I say what I'm getting ready to say next. And I'm going to keep saying it because in my seven years of hospice, I've just seen this over and over again. Is that, is that not every one is going to leave this world in perfect comfort. And it is not your fault if a family member or the caregiver is resistant or unwilling to take your advice or the advice of your medical director when it comes to meds at the end of life. And I just tell people all the time that it is not some constitutional right that everybody gets morphine at the end of life and is gets the ultimate level of comfort as we see it. Because remember, this is not my care plan. This is the patient's care plan. This is the patient's caregiver care plan. And I'm sorry that sometimes the caregiver gets in the way of the patient's ultimate level of comfort. But who are we to decide what comfort is and try to push that down somebody else's throat and it's not going to help you I've talked a little bit on this show about the importance of influence and trust and I, one of my favorite sayings is conflict erodes influence so the more power struggles you have with your patient and caregiver the less likely you are to accomplish what it is you're trying to do for them so Remember that I've said this before. I'm going to keep saying it. It's only important to you if it is important to the patient or the caregiver. And I had somebody get on the blog and really argue with this and say the patient is number one and their caregiver is number two. 
and I appreciate that sentiment. And I'm not saying that we don't educate our caregiver, but I will also say that when you leave, the caregiver is going to do what the caregiver wants to do. And it certainly is not hot, a hotlineable situation, if that's even a word. You don't just you can't hotline somebody because they're not giving enough morphine to their mother. That it just doesn't work that way. As long as mom isn't getting beat up and mistreated and abused, and being in pain is not abuse unless you're causing the pain and you're not. So let's not get caught in all those power struggles. It does not help you accomplish what you want to accomplish. And then let's not have triangles. Now, I worked in mental health for about four years, and people who struggle with mental health, uh, especially who have been institutionalized a lot, really like to create triangles. They triangulate to try to manipulate and get control. And so I'm not saying that our caregivers are all mentally ill, although some of them are, and that's okay. We'll work around that. Um, but it's real easy to get caught in kind of a triangulating situation and you're trapped in the middle and you're finding yourself getting stuck in long visits. So think of it like this. How do you know if you're in a triangle? Well, the thing is there's always three groups involved when it comes to hospice patients. Okay. You have the hospice, which a lot of times is you, especially because you're case managing, you're the nurse very glamorous, <laughs> not, um, but there's three groups involved, hospice, the patient and their caregiver. Okay. And that caregiver can be a person or sometimes it can be a facility, whether it be assisted living long or long-term care or something. So the triangles happen when two of the groups are fighting and then you're kind of stuck in the middle. That's my triangle, okay? And so we had an incident uh, last year where we had a patient who was starting to transition, and the DPOA lives out of town. I bet if you've been doing hospice for very long, you've had this happen. And the DPOA wanted to do more aggressive symptom management and the family members that lived in town did not want to do very aggressive symptom management. And I had more than one nurse getting stuck at this home while the DPOA from out of town and the family members in town fought. And I had to have a sit down with the team and say, no more getting stuck at this house. If the DPOA doesn't find it necessary to jump on an airplane or in a car and drive here while the patient is dying, then really it's all out of your hands. You've provided the education. You've provided the medication. They know what is available to them. There's nothing wrong with calling the room into order and telling everybody, here's the medication. Here's what to do. Here's the expected outcome. If you all come to a consensus and need something from me, let me know and excuse yourself from the home and leave them to their own problems. Because here's the thing, you cannot resolve decades of conflict at the bedside of a dying person. This, these people are, are the least functional. Lord knows any of us would be the least functional in the middle of a loved one dying and it's not your fault. It's their fault. It is. And, and I don't mean to, maybe that's not even the right way to say it, but you're not the one causing the conflict. That family is going to have to work it out. And then we are available. Should they have further questions or need us in a unique way that we can help with? So I told my staff, once the fighting begins, call the room to order, get everybody's attention because you have the authority and the ability to do that and say, while you guys get this worked out, I'm going to go. And then who, and if anybody wants to argue with you, you can just explain to them, I can't resolve this for you. I'm available for you. I want to help you, but 
this can't be resolved. And then you can excuse yourself, especially if it's after hours during the daytime. Maybe you need to get involved with the social worker and have her come over, him come over and assist. But no triangles. Okay. Um, Try to avoid getting roped into situations where you're caught in the middle. That doesn't work. You got to go. Just go (laughs) and leave them to the mess. And if you have to leave a patient who's not comfortable because they're all fighting, because here's the deal. If I I think this needs to be said, and you might be yelling it at your phone or device or whatever you're listening to this on, but you... If you have to leave a patient who is uncomfortable because the family can't figure it out, that is still on them and it's not on you. It's not on you to turn that all around. And and especially, I know you might be thinking to yourself, but the DPOA says give them you know, a milliliter of the morphine because that's the order. But the family is standing there saying, no, you are not giving that to the patient. I am not going to force this medication down the patient's throat in front of a bunch of family members that don't want it done, regardless of who the power of attorney is. They need to resolve this and come to an agreement. You can throw out some ideas. Let's meet in the middle. There's lots of different options, right? But it is not your role to fix all of this. I don't care who the DPOA is. It's a bad situation. Don't get stuck there. Um, Don't invent problems. It isn't your job to find every single problem in the house and fix it. Us nurses, we're fix-it people. We are, you know, we're all caregivers at heart, and it's real easy to go into a home and find all the different problems maybe that are there and want to fix them all. And we've got to slow that down and realize what is reasonable on a Tuesday afternoon for us to accomplish with other visits that are still due. People are going to live the way they're going to live. There's no guideline to what somebody should receive at end of life, which kind of ties into my last point. So this is their journey. You are the guide, but you don't decide where things are going. And I think, I think it's real easy for, it's that's that whole thing over again that says if it's important to the patient, it's important to you. And if it's not important to the patient, it's not important to you. S- especially don't find yourself every single week trying to solve a problem that they are always resistant to you solving. Just don't spin your wheels like that. So don't invent problems. Don't dig up new problems. Um, something that comes to mind is real tight blood sugar control. I've seen a lot of nurses really fight hard trying to manage all of blood sugars and all of that kind of thing. Talk to the patient or the family, find out what they really want done, you know, what they want it to look like and help them accomplish that. And don't just find lots of problems that you're trying to fix all the time that you seem to be the only person who cares about it. Um, I feel like this point is probably a little out of order. I probably should have stuck it more towards the top. But I mentioned knowing your patients. This is why we should see patients at least twice a week, right? And not everybody dies the same. Death doesn't look the same for every single person. This is individualized care. And it's unlike any other area of medicine. It can be so challenging to really get comfortable. It took me at least a year to really start feeling comfortable in hospice. And then I still decided to stay a case manager for a whole other year working with Dr. Link because I just felt like there was so much I still wanted to learn as a case manager before I tried any other area of hospice. Um, But by having lots of visits and being there more, you're going to have a better idea of knowing your patient, what they are like at baseline. And then that helps to prepare you better for when they, they are near the end, because I think it's real as much as we're supposed to do individualized care. I think we still, when a patient is close to the end within the last four or five days, 
we can start expecting goals for them that they couldn't achieve before their health took this steep of a decline. And, and it reminds me of a patient that I had last year that was had real bad COPD and at baseline she breathed 25 to 28 breaths a minute and never complained of shortness of air. She had been breathing that way for a long time. And when she stopped eating and drinking and she was in within her last two or three days and I would visit her, her respirations were always at 25 or 26 or 27. And now they're still like that. And there was no reason for me to get stuck there for hours trying to get her respirations to a place that they hadn't been at in three years. And I think that that happens a lot where we forget to look at our patient individually and recognize what their baseline numbers look like or maybe the goals that they had shared with us. And we just get into this mode where we want to impose what we think things should look like on our patients and it doesn't help. And so just we just need to be aware of what our patients need from us and what their baseline looks like so we don't have unrealistic expectations for them as they're close to the end. <coughs> Getting dry. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you are new to hospice or considering hospice, then in September of 2022, I created the website for you. I created thehospicenursingcommunity.com. What started out as a simple community has become a large library of video trainings. Thehospicenursingcommunity.com now has over 45 video coaching sessions covering subjects such as bedside charting, the hospice comfort kit, the four levels of care, how to interview for a hospice job, and so much more. I just completed a seven-part series for case managers, and I'm getting ready to start a series on the PPS scale. TheHospiceNursingCommunity.com is available for just $4.99 per month for full access. Head over to TheHospiceNursingCommunity.com for hope, help, and encouragement. And remember, hospice nursing doesn't get easier. You just get better at it. So let's get better at it together. Um, and then, you know, I can't hardly go a single episode without charting at the bedside, but let's take a little bit different angle at this, why it can be helpful for you to, uh, keep your visits from becoming too long. Um, use your documentation time to signal the visit is nearing an end. So there is to me. I have trained lots of my patients that when I whip out my computer, I am starting to button up the visit. And it sends this very clear message that says, I've addressed all of your needs. I have uh, taken care of what, you know, the wound care is done, or I've done all the education I need to do. So I'm going to sit down now and I am going to finish this visit by doing my charting. And this is a great way to do it. You can flip that screen up and yes, it creates a barrier. And all the people who are like, it's rude. It creates a barrier. Well, you might need a barrier at the end to signal that you've got to leave soon. So don't be afraid. And I wrote in my notes, snap that thing shut, put it in your bag and stand up. Because I've, I've had to do this. You know, some folks just need companionship, and I don't mind providing that. But if you just sit there and listen, they will talk to you for an hour straight. And sometimes it feels like maybe they don't even take a breath. And while I like being able to provide that for my patients and give them somebody to talk to uh, and their caregivers possibly, it's not realistic for me to just stay there. So I will close my device and put it in the bag and I don't make an obnoxiousness of it, but they can certainly tell what I'm doing. And then I stand up and I have had to walk towards the door and almost step out of it while caregivers follow me and are trying to finish a story. And that is not rude. That is helping them sever the meeting. We can't camp in people's houses forever because they want to talk about stuff or, um, 
I hope that makes sense to you, but sometimes you got to just use some obvious cues to help everybody understand that this, this visit's coming to an end and it's time for me to, to make an exit out the door. So this article that I wrote, I decided I would, I would go ahead and add some extra things here because, excuse me, when I was writing this series last fall, I actually wrote this article that I'm talking about right now last August and I've been releasing these episodes or the, 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 let me get my brain straight. I've been releasing the articles about once a week. I did it for like nine, 10 weeks in a row and I was releasing them on Saturday. So the following Tuesday, I had what I felt like was a really good day where it was super organized. I got around and I I was so proud of myself, uh, the timeliness, the efficiency that I had, that I got on the message board for the hospice nurse support group on Facebook. I got in the group and I posted the whole day in the schedule and thought it would really help people. So, <clears throat> and I, some people liked it and some people were really critical of it and did thought I did a terrible thing by sharing it. And lots of people were like, don't do this. It's terrible. Um, but I'm going to read this to you. And then I'm going to record my next podcast episode and release it one week from uh, from tomorrow. Tomorrow is uh, July 24th. Hopefully I'm not getting my days wrong. Tomorrow's July 24th. And so a week later, I'm going to release the second one. And we're going to talk about what I'm getting ready to share with you. But so here's what I did the Tuesday following the release of that blog post and I'm just going to read it off to you and um, and end the show just like that. <laughs> and then we'll talk about it more on the next episode. So um, here's what I said. I decided to add to this article details from my Tuesday following the original release. This is my attempt to give my readers a glimpse into one of my days. I hope it helps. And so I put this, my schedule today and charting. Six patients who will be known as one through six, all charting completed at the bedside. So this is what I did. I made my first visit at 8 a.m. And that visit was from 8 a.m. to 8.45 a.m. And there was no new orders. And as a side note, I went back and I printed up from that day who I saw. And it was kind of interesting to see that again. But this first patient lived real close to me. And so it was there like... 10 minutes away. So it was easy to start there at eight. Okay. So I'm just trying to give you some details. Anyway, patient one, I visited from eight to eight forty-five. This was a Tuesday. So these were all full assessments. So from eight to eight forty-five, and then I drove 43 miles to patient two. I'm looking at my list of who I saw. I kind of remember that one. Yep, I remember who that is now. Anyway, this patient was actively dying. I was there for one hour from 9.30 to 10.30. Now, I everybody was like, there's no way your times were that perfect. They were really close. I mean, I may have cheated five minutes this way or five minutes that way. But when I say 8 a.m. to 8.45, it could have been 8.02 or 8.03 to, you know, 8.48 or something. like. So I didn't cheat by a ton when I filled this out. Patient two, I saw from 9.30 to 10.30, the patient was actively dying. It was 30 miles to the patient, so I was there by 9.30 in the morning. Um, or, or I'm sorry, it was 43 miles. They were way over on the other side of the state line. I was helping over in Kansas. Um, I was helping another office, so I was seeing patients on both sides. So I took care of that patient, and then I drove 30 miles to patient number three, and so patient number three, I saw from 1115 to noon and I did a pill box. And so then patient four was in the same building. So there's no travel. So from noon to one, I saw that patient and did that pill box. Then I traveled another 25 miles, which was south from where I was. I remember this day pretty well um, to see patient number five. And I saw patient number five from one thirty to two thirty, and that's a hard patient. I looked it up and was like, "Oof, that was not an easy visit." Then I traveled twenty three miles to patient number six and saw that patient from three to four o'clock. 
And then I drove about five miles from there to pick up my daughter from work, but she didn't get off till 530. So I worked on some research notes uh, and did some stuff for a couple of the patients that was just more IDT related. Uh, and I did some stuff for a nurse who was out sick. And so I wrote this at the bottom. I said, start nice and early, chart at the bedside, be intentional. So six visits. The first visit started at eight. The last visit was done at four. So that was my day. And that's where I left it. Start nice and early, chart at the bedside, be intentional. So what I am going to talk about in my next episode will be what the response was to that. I'm going to try to hunt down the thread there at the hospice nurse support group on Facebook and see what, and and I'll try to link it and everything so you can go back and look and maybe you can give me your opinion of my day. You know, did that make sense to you? Did I do too much doing six visits? They were all attached together like that. In the show notes, I will make sure I post this in there so you can come by and take a look at it at confessionsofahospicenurse.net and let me know what you think. Did I Was I smart? Was it the right thing? How does it hit you? And next week, we're going to talk about how it hit the hospice nurse support group. There was well over 100 comments on that thread. So I think it was good for everybody, to be honest with you, because it gave us a lot to talk about. And it was it was fun, I thought, you know, and, and it gave me something to write for my next article. So that is really all I have here, which has gone a little longer than I thought. We're at 49 minutes. I really appreciate you. As I've said before, I'm very excited for what the future holds for the show. So expect another episode to be released in a week to follow up on this. Don't forget to call or text me at 816-834-9191 or email me at james at confessionsofahospicenurse.net. This has been episode 14 of the Hospice Nursing Podcast for July 24th, 2022.